Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 16 in this audio. Our context is this, at the end of chapter 6, Paul had chastised severely the Corinthians and warned them severely against sexual immorality. And so now he starts on a related topic, which is how do we conduct ourselves in in marriage, especially when we have believers and unbelievers involved. So we'll start here in chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says this, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. Now immediately we have a problem. What does Paul mean, it's good for a man not to have relations with a woman? Does that mean he's not supposed to have relations with his wife? Well, that's nonsense, of course, because he says later on in this passage, he says it's bad to say that you're not going to have relations with your wife. Well, other translations don't say it is good for a man to have relations with a woman. It says it is good for a man not to marry. This is what the NIV says, and I really believe that that's what Paul meant here, but it is a question. The NIV margin has, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. So either, probably because of textual variance, it's hard to translate that verse. I don't know if it's textual variance or whether it's a translation problem. I haven't looked, but there's a problem of how to translate that. Well, if Paul is saying it's good for a man not to have relations with his wife, or he's not saying that, if he's saying it's good for a man not to get married, well then... That doesn't make a lot of sense either, except there's a condition. We drop down in 1 Corinthians 7.26, Paul says this, Therefore I consider this to be good, meaning remaining celibate, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is. In other words, it's hard to get married now because of the situation in Corinth, which was probably persecutory. And so he's saying, okay, it's all right to stay single. For this is, so that's what Paul's talking about here. In the current conditions, it's good for a man not to get married. He's not talking about in the normal condition. I mean, just face it, we do the same thing. If somebody somebody came to my unmarried daughter and said, well, I don't have a job yet, the first thing I would say, well, in light of your present distress, you ain't marrying my daughter because romance without finance is a nuisance. So we have to look at the whole context here. We've got to remember that Paul is not denigrating marriage. In other places, Paul speaks highly of marriage. For example, in Ephesians 5.22, that famous passage on marriage, Wives, submit to your own husbands to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. Let me skip down here. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Pretty high view of marriage there. Colossians 3.18.19. Wives, be submissive to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and don't be bitter towards them. First Timothy 3, 2, an overseer, an elder, therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, in other words, he ain't a philanderer, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able teacher. First Timothy 3, 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households completely. See, the sanctity of marriage in the household is upheld by Paul when he looks at prerequisites for church leadership and church service. 1 Timothy 5.14, Paul tells Timothy, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households. That doesn't sound like he's against marriage there. And in 1 Timothy 4.1-3, Paul says this, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose conscience are seared. They forbid marriage. So he said some really bad people forbid marriage. Gnostic, ascetics, 
Now, it could be that Paul is not saying it's good for a man not to get married in the present distress. It could be he's just saying it's good for a man not to have immoral relations with a woman, if you want to translate it that way. The problem with that, though, is the context is all about marriage, because the next few verses, as we'll see, the next several verses, as we shall see, are directly related to marriage, not living immorally. But it could be. He could have, he could have said, don't, you need to keep yourself sexually pure, in verse 1, don't have relations with a woman keep yourself pure and then in verse two but because sexual immorality is so common you should get married it's in other words it's just so doggone hard for you corinthians to stay pure sexually because because uh, you have so much sex available everywhere to you so maybe you ought to get married could be i am not going to take a stand on that too vehemently paul says it is good for a man not to have relations well let's summarize here what's good well, as I said, it could be it's good not to have sexual relations with unmarried people. But as I said, the following verses deal with marriage, not immoral sex. So that's questionable. It could be it's good not to get married. But if he means that, it means in the light of present of the present distress, as Paul says in verse 26, it's, hard not, it's good not to get married. Now, here's a third option. He could be quoting an ascetic Corinthian who says that marriage is bad. And in other words... When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, in the response to the matters you wrote about, quotation mark, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, in quotation mark, he's not quoting the Corinthians writing to them in the letter. He is quoting the Corinthians who are quoting an ascetic person in Corinth who's saying, oh, sex is bad. Married people ought not to have sex. They ought not to get married. Sex is evil. Sex is bad. Paul could be responding to that. And the way he responds to that is in verse 2 when he says each man should have his own wife. So forget this forbidden marriage stuff. That's an interesting idea. You don't hear that very often. That was an idea that came from my NIV study Bible. We go to verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Now Paul is reflecting reality. He knows that the sex drive is extremely, shall we say, I don't want to say violent. It's extremely powerful. Let's put it that way. I mean, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud based his whole view of human nature on it, which I think is absurd. It's going too far. But nonetheless, he's you know the sex drive is very, very important, very, very powerful. It has to be managed. Every civilization has to manage manage it. Even a situation, even a society as corrupt and sexually immoral as America, and and it's gender fluid because of all the gender noxies in the gender studies department in universities all across the land. Even we have sexual morality standards that are not crossed because it would destroy families and destroy people. Even we do. Every society's got to manage the sex drive, and so Paul is doing what everybody has to do, what every father of a teenage daughter has to do. What's that old saying? How do you define a conservative? A conservative is a liberal with a teenage daughter. So Paul says the best way you handle sexual immorality is to get married. And he's really right about that. I mean, if you if you are married and you're having routine, and not routine, that's a bad word, if you're having frequent sexual relations, you're not going to spend the time going out trying to find something on the side. You don't need to. So Paul's a very practical guy here. Then when Paul says sexual immorality is common in Corinth, the Corinthians were known for their sexual immorality. And the, the famous example that's always quoted, as in my NIV study Bible, is quoted in a lot of places. There was a temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. And Aphrodite is always called the temple of the goddess of love. I prefer to call her the goddess of lust because that's really what she was. So on the hill above Corinth, the Acrocorinth, 
That temple had at one time a thousand temple prostitutes. A thousand. You go worship Aphrodite by having sex with one of her priest prostitutes. Notice that Paul in verse 2 says each man should have his own wife, not wives. He assumes monogamy. Polygamy had more or less been scotched by that time, even among the Jews. One thing I forgot to mention in verse 1, all of what Paul is talking about here in chapter 7 is in response to something that the Corinthians had written about. Remember in a previous audio I mentioned that the Corinthians had let Paul know what was going on in Corinth two ways. One, by a letter, and this is what he's referring to here, and also by an oral report out of Chloe's household. So he had two sources of information. We go now to verse 3 through 5 in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says this, A husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but the husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but the wife, his wife does. So do, do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now this has always been one of my favorite passages. I remember when I was in college, and we, our, my Christian guy friends would say, the wife has control over the husband's body. Well, and then I, we would think, well, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Why would a husband not be happy about that? Well, it doesn't work that way. A lot of times men don't want to make love with their wives because they have marriage problems. Now, this period of time, Paul allows people to, to couples to, and remember, he's talking about Christian couples here, the amount of time that they should, that they are allowed to separate and devoting themselves to prayer. They can become monks for a, for a while, for a month, monks for a moment, I guess you could say. Well, the rabbis had ideas about that too. They didn't allow, they didn't like married couple to abstain for sex for a certain amount of time. The school of Shammai said for two weeks. The school of Hillel said one week. You could go that long. The Shammai is a conservative school of the Pharisees. The Hillel is a liberal school. They also made a distinction between regular workers and scholars. Scholars could go out and leave their wives for 30 days. Workmen could leave for one week. I guess scholars are more cerebral and they can concentrate on their books and be distracted and not think about sex when they're studying all day long. But this idea that women have the same rights over the body just as the, over the, uh, her, her husband's body, just as the husband has rights over the wife's body, it reminds me of a, well, it makes me want to ask a question. Do women want to exercise their conjugal rights as much as men do? Really? This reminds me of a song played by a friend of mine. I won't mention her husband's name because he's also a friend. <laughs> But she got up at the, we just had the, we were having a marriage conference and somebody just delivered the sex session, talking about marriage sex. And Cheryl Buford gets up in front of the conference with a boom box. And she says, I've got to play an appropriate song here. And so she hits the button and, and it was the temptation singing, ain't too proud to beg, sweet mama. So we all got a good charge out of that. But... The bottom line is, folks, if you ain't having sex, there's something wrong. I mean, that, that's grounds for annulment. If you get married, I, I actually know a case like this. couple got married, the, wife, the husband refused to have sex with his wife. Oh, and his wife was so pretty, and she's so nice. I'm thinking, what's the matter with this guy? Is he nuts? He probably was, but he didn't have sex with her. And so she divorced him, which is, well, I don't know if it was a divorce. It was probably more like an annulment. 
Here's a quote from Adam Clark. What miserable work has been made in the peace of families by a wife or a husband pretending to be wiser than the apostle and too holy and spiritual to keep the commandments of God? In other words, spouses refusing to have sex with one another because it's not God's will. I remember one time I was reading some of these marriage books years ago and one of the authors quoted a Victorian Christian back in the late 1800s and the woman was bragging that her husband had never seen her with her shirt off. And I thought, well, you know, that's that's absolutely ridiculous, but that's the way people used to think. And the, the, the point of this book was talking about a lot of ascetic, platonic ideas that crept into the church, and then it was, those ideas were still bothering the church, and a lot of Christian wives had this idea that sex was evil. Well, I don't know. That was 50 years ago. I hope that's changed by now. I don't know if it has or not, but if it's still present, it's wrong because there's no asceticism in Christianity. I mean, Paul right here says you need to have sex with your spouse, so forget it. He's very practical here. Now, going along with this idea of how Christian couples owe each other a duty, I've got to quote to you the lyrics from a country song that I heard in 1974 when I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And that song has stayed with me through the years, but I lost it and I forgot who sang it. I went to a country music show and heard the song there, along with another great song, Red there's no other place that I'd rather be than right here with my redneck white socks and blue ribbon beer. And as I was in a currently deracinated state, having been having left the South and gone to the big city of Chicago, that song really resonated with me. But this one also by little David Wilkins, Not Tonight, I've Got a Headache. Let me read you the lyrics. Not tonight, I've got a headache. That's what I hear when I come home. And now her heartaches, and now her headaches have brought me heartaches. And now she wonders why I stay gone. Don't she realize that a man needs loving and cannot live on dreams alone? And don't she understand a man goes looking for things he ain't been getting at home? Now that's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, Come together again, lest Satan tempt you. Lest Satan tempt you. This man is putting in more homely language, little David Wilkins, the exact same idea. He says a man can't live on dreams alone. She don't understand if a man a man goes looking for things he ain't getting at home. That's being tempted by the devil. Little David Wilkins continues. Now, I'm not laying the blame upon her, and I'm not saying it's all her fault. We mistook love for a bed of roses, but now the roses are dead and gone. Not tonight. I've got a headache. That's what I hear when I come home. And now her heartaches have brought me headaches. Now her headaches have brought me heartaches. I'm sorry. Now she wonders why I stay gone. Well, I think Paul's clear in those verses. We go to 1 Corinthians 7, 6. Paul says this, I say the following as a concession, not as a command. Now, this is the Holman Christian Study Bible. The NIV says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Now, the NIV is a little bit ambiguous here because if you say, I say this, that could be referring to what he just said. And what he just said was, I want you to come together. I say this is a concession. I want you to have sexual relationship with your spouse, with your Christian husband or wife. I want you to have sex with them. That's a concession? No, that's not a concession. I don't think. That's a command. And so the Holman Christian Study Bible, and I think quite properly, translates it this way. I say the following. I say this. The following as a concession, not as a command. Now, John Gill tries to say that perhaps, well, John, Jameson Fawcett Brown actually says this refers to what came Proceeding, that this is a concession that you ought to come together. <laughs> I mean, really. By the way, there's one thing I forgot. How does 
not coming together for prayer. How does prayer prevent you from coming together? I don't understand that idea. It seems to me like you can have sex and pray too. You know, I don't see why the two are incompatible with one another. But Paul seemed to think it that there was a practice of people where they maybe they went off on a retreat somewhere. I don't know. But anyway, Gill says that this idea of coming together as Christian spouses could be as a concession. The this refers to the preceding. The this in verse six refers to the preceding words. It's a concession to come together. I find that hard to believe. Now, John Gill says, well, maybe he's just referring to the depriving each other for a time as a concession. In other words, I want you to come together, and I'll concede that maybe you could stay apart for a little while. I'll concede that to you. Well, that could be. But I really think that what he's talking about here is what comes. And what's coming in the next verses is marriage, saying single or getting married. And what he's conceding here is that it's He's saying the general rule is you need to get married, but I will concede to you that in the present distress, it might be good not to get married. Let me quote to you 1 Corinthians 7.26. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to remain as he is, that is, single. Okay, we go to verse 7, 1 Corinthians 7. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way and another in that way. Now, what does Paul mean when he says just like me? I'm assuming he means single. Now, John Gill denies that he was married, so Paul would then be saying, I wish that all people were just like me, married, but I don't think that's what he was saying. John Gill denies that. Adam Clark says it's unmarried, and I think that's right. Now, a lot of people dispute whether Paul was married or not in the past. They say that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, and you had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Let me just go brief. I think it's a tempest in a teapot, but let me mention some of the arguments. First Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says this. Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles? Oh, that makes it sound like he's married. He has the right to be accompanied by a wife on his travels. However, as I point out, that right might have been an abstract one. He had the right, but he didn't exercise the right because he didn't have a, right, a, a wife. And not only that, he might be referring to other apostles who were traveling with him who had the right, because he says, don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife? He might have been referring to his fellow apostles, not himself, having the right to be married. And as John Gill points out, look at the next verse. Does this sound like he was married or unmarried? He says in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. He says to unmarried people, stay like I am, which would imply that he was unmarried. So we're going to assume that Paul is unmarried, and he says, but I'm not going to try to force that on you. This is a, by way of concession to remain unmarried. Each has his own gift. If you can't stay married, well, then get married. Some people have the gift to stay unmarried, and some people want to get married. And I've talked to lots of Christians about this. And I said, have you ever met anybody who has a gift of celibacy, the so-called gift of celibacy? And uh, not yet. I'm 68 years old. I have yet to meet any Christian that has the gift of celibacy. Marriage is the most natural thing in the world. It drives people to get married, even immoral pagans. They'll live together for 10 years. I think, was it, Scarlett Johansson, the movie actress? I'll never forget. She says, we've been living together for 10 years, and we, got, we just got married, and it feels different. We're married now. I said, yes, sir, it's different. Shacking up ain't getting married. But anyway, if, you've got your, if you can stay unmarried, I met a, well, I say I've never met anybody that had the gift. I guess maybe I did. I was in China and saw this. Man, he was a little bit older than me, and he'd been there for years. He'd working in amongst the countryside people trying to help him learn how to farm, and he was evangelizing. He was a Christian. And he had this young Chinese Christian girl who was his secretary, and that girl was madly in love with this single man. And it was as obvious as the nose on one's face that she was in love with him, and that man 
She was his secretary. That was it. He wouldn't, he just, he was hard as a rock. I've never seen anything like it. So I guess I made a mistake when I said I've never seen anybody with the gift of celibacy. This guy had it. Now, here's another option. When Paul says, I wish that all people were just like me, he could have been saying, I wish that all people were like me, sexually moral, sexually continent. Then you would say each has his own gift from God, one this way and one another. I mean, some people can be sexually moral and some people can't be. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So I think he's saying, I wish that all people were just like me, unmarried. Well, now the next question is, why would Paul want everybody to be unmarried? Because of the present distress. Marriage has a lot of responsibilities and these responsibilities would impinge upon the Corinthians' ability to live a happy life. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, Paul says this, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, when Paul talks to the unmarried, there's a question of whether he's talking to unmarried men only, unmarried women only, or both. Jameson and Brown. Fawcett and Brown say both sexes are referred to here. That would mean that women would be burning with desire. Well, there's your problem again. I remember I had a friend one time who said he couldn't understand lesbian couples. He says, with the lesbian couples, who's going to initiate sex? They're never going to have sex with one another. Isn't that great? <laughs> I had to think about that one for a minute. Well, you know, in marriage counseling, they always say, women, wives, it's good if you every now and then initiate sex. But why do the marriage counselors always say that? Because women never do. That's why. That's just the way it is, folks. Testosterone. Testosterone goes first. Estrogen follows along. So, I don't know. I tend to think that Paul's talking to unmarried men here. I'm not going to get too upset if you think otherwise. Now, unmarried, if it's unmarried, unmarried men, well, what kind of unmarried men? You could have widowers whose wife has died. You could have divorced unmarried men. Or you could just have single unmarried men. What difference? It doesn't make any difference to me. You could have all of the above Paul's talking about. Stay single, unless you don't have self-control, if, because it's better to marry than to burn. In other words, it's better to marry under the present distress and have a hard married life because things are so tough. That's bad, but it's worse to be burning with desire and not having your sexual urges satisfied. You know, if Paul was a widower, we don't know. Maybe he had a wife and she died. Then he would be in a better position to give advice here. I know what it's like to be unmarried having a wife and now she's gone and not and staying unmarried and not getting remarried i know what it's like so i can i can give you some advice we don't know though we don't know what his marital status was now notice in verse 9 he says they should marry to the unmarried and to widows dot 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 they should marry if they're burning they should marry that means it's okay for widows to remarry after they their husbands died now this cuts across against a lot of ideas. I know when I was in China, I met a young, well, I guess in her late 20s landlord. We were renting an apartment from her. This was years ago in Shanghai. And I, and I thought to myself, well, aren't you awful young? She said, and she said she was never going to get married again. She was just chatting. And I asked her, I said, you plan to get remarried? She said, no, she's not going to do that. So I was talking to another Chinese friend of mine, a student. And I said, why do you think this young she knew the landlord i said why would she not want to get remarried she said oh that's chinese custom the idea is you stay loyal to your husband even after you die even after the husband dies you stay husband and never marry again well you know that's chinese but that's not christian paul says hey it's better unless unless well actually he's saying if you want to stay single that's fine i shouldn't say that that doesn't violate poet paul saying to, to stay unmarried if you're not burning with desire to get married you don't get remarried again that's fine but it does say that it's all right to remarry and if you could go one step further. Well, if it's all right for widows to remarry, 
Why not divorce people? You know, there's a lot of Christians that say divorce people can't remarry. I never have understood that argument because divorce means the, the Greek word for divorce is break apart. I forgot the Greek word exactly. I remember the meaning was to break, to, to, to break asunder. Well, that means the marriage is gone, folks. So if the marriage is gone, that means you're single, right? Why can't you get remarried? I never have figured that out. I figured that out. First Corinthians 7.10. By the way, the King James Version, back, going back to verse 1, says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is the worst translation. It might have been good back in King James's day, but it ain't any good today. That's a terrible translation. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. I remember when I was in my dispensationalist phrase and had to take everything rigidly literal, I remember thinking, you mean I can't hold hands with a girl? Or I can't accidentally bump up against a girl walking down the sidewalk in a crowd or something or on a bus or something. You know, are you serious? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, the King James English meant it's good for you not to have sexual relations with a woman, not touch. First Corinthians seven ten, Paul says this I command the married, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. Now the married he's talking about married Christians now. He's not talking about married not mixed marriages, but married spouses, both husband and wife are Christians. And he says, not I, but the Lord. That doesn't mean that, that what that means is that the Lord has given this command for a wife not to leave her husband. It's a, in other words, he's quoting Jesus here. Now, where was that? Well, Matthew 5, 32, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, which is the same thing as saying, hey, you better not leave your husband to, to marry somebody else, woman. And then in Matthew 19, verse 9, And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, you can't leave your husband except for adultery. You can't leave your husband and marry somebody else. You're not supposed to leave him. Mark 10 says the same thing in verses uh, 11 and 12. I won't read that. Luke 16, 18 says the same thing. They're probably par- there might be parallel passages, but they, anyway, Jesus said that and Paul's quoting him. A wife is not to leave her husband. Now, notice what goes unstated here is there's an exception to this. A wife is allowed to leave her husband with adultery. And the key verse is, the key verse is Matthew 19, verse 9. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. There's an exception. Paul's not talking about the exception here. That goes without saying. If there's adultery, marriage is over. That doesn't mean, I say it's over, it, it's potentially over. The offended spouse could always say, well, I'll forgive him and go back to him, or I'll forgive her and go back to her. But basically, Paul is probably shooting at here the idea of easy divorce. And the Jews were famous about it. You know, oh, she, she burnt my toast. I'm going to divorce her. Oh, she talks too much. I'm going to divorce her. And they were Jews in the Corinthian church there. He could have been talking about that. That, and I imagine the Gentile rules for divorce are probably just as lax. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with with law and the culture back then, but you're not supposed to leave your husband for less than adulterous reasons. You're not supposed to do it. Oh, but you say, what happens if the wife is, the the husband is beating the wife? And of course, now we have wives beating husbands, I found out. It's kind of a strange phenomenon, but it, it occurs. Well, that's, it, when he's, when Paul says not leave, it doesn't mean leave the premises to protect your physical existence. He's talking about don't put her away. Don't legally divorce. The NIV study Bible when says that when Paul says the Lord says this, that Paul could have actually heard that command from the Lord relayed by other apostles that Paul was talking to, other apostles who had known Jesus. That's a possibility. In other words, it might not be the these particular scriptures. Maybe Paul had a direct revelation from the Lord. That's possible. 
Now, when Paul says a wife is not to leave her husband, you might ask, well, how could she leave her husband? Women didn't have the right to divorce back then. Well, yes, they did. As John Gill and Adam Clark say, at that time, wives had the right to divorce as well as did men, even though the right was not specifically stated in the law. And Clark gives a formula, a kind of like a pleadings, a, a, a pleadings template uh, from, I don't know whether this is Jewish or this is Greek, but it went like this. A woman might put away or depart from her husband by giving this simple reason to the elders. This is Jewish. To the elders who would give the following certificate, quote, in blank day of blank week of blank year, A, daughter of B, put away before us and said, my mother or my brother deceived me and wedded me or betrothed me when I was a very young maid to C, son of D. But I now reveal my mind before you that I will not have him. That's what the language said. Sometimes they parted with mutual consent. Clark goes on, and this was also this and this also was considered legal, as was also the marriage of the separated parties to others. In other words, they could get divorced and they could get remarried. This was under Jewish law, so it would be possible for a wife to leave a husband. And Paul saying, "Well, don't do it, unless there's been adultery, of course." And here is probably understood: the man can't leave the woman either. I'm sure it was. It doesn't matter. The next verse specifically says so. Verse 11, Paul says a husband is not to leave his wife. So it goes for both spouses. We go to verse 11, 1 Corinthians 7. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, Paul is now dealing with a situation if the Corinthians received the letter and they've already got a situation where somebody's left their spouse. They shouldn't have done it. If they would have, had gotten Paul's admonition earlier and had obeyed him, they wouldn't have left. But now one of the spouses has left. And Paul is saying, okay, now, stay unmarried. If they've left, stay unmarried. Don't get married somebody else. Or if you can't get reconciled, you better stay unmarried, or you go ahead and be reconciled to her husband. Otherwise, you're committing adultery. High view of marriage, folks, which means you better not enter into the estate lightly, as the traditional marriage vows say. I remember when I was about to get married, the thought of it scared me so bad. I said, you know, this is for life. There's no grounds for divorce. I'm not going to commit adultery, and I know she won't either. Well, what happens if I don't like being married? What happens if I lost my freedom? I've got no grounds for divorce. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's the sort of attitude you ought to have when you go into marriage. You ought to be scared out of your mind, and the thought of divorce should not even cross your mind, that you were making a solemn commitment. That's why marriage is so different than shacking up as roommates. Now, again, in verse 11, we are assuming that no adultery has been committed because that's the exception that Paul's not talking about, but what Jesus did talk about. Now, I've got another interesting question that's kind of bothered me a little bit. Whose adultery were you talking about? Well, let's say that a woman is married to a man and he commits adultery. Well, the woman then, of course, has the right to divorce. The marriage is dissolved. That's not a problem. But what happens if the man commits adultery and then he goes to his wife and says, I want a divorce. There's been adultery in this marriage and now our marriage is broken. I want to marry my little cute girlfriend. Well, now he's profiting from his own adultery and the poor wife got shafted. Well, now it looks like the husband is profiting from his own sin. Now, should you say, well, if you take the position, well, since he committed adultery, he ought not to be allowed to file for divorce. Well, then now you're making the wife being forced to be reconciled with an adulterous husband. Do we really want to force her to be reconciled? Well, what happens if the husband commits adultery and we say, oh, well, we're not going to allow him to profit by his own sin. Therefore, we're going to force him to stay together. Well, now the wife doesn't want him back. And now she's forced to live with some philanderer that she doesn't want. So that's a problem. So it's a problem if you don't allow an adulterer to file for divorce. But if you do allow an adulterer to file for divorce, well, then he is profiting. He's coming into un 
to court with unclean hands, as the equitable legal principle is. He's coming into court with unclean hands and profiting thereby. So why should he be allowed to file for divorce? This raises all sorts of legal questions and moral questions, too. I remember reading a book on divorce one time. I said, ah, this is going to solve this knotty problem. And in the end, the person who wrote the book, who basically said adultery, divorce is okay, remarriage is okay, but unbelieving spouse leaves is okay. Basically, you know, the basic teaching on divorce. But then he gave case examples. He used to be a marriage counselor. And the case examples he gave were basically unsoluble. You couldn't solve them. I couldn't solve them. It was so complicated. It takes Solomon to solve these things because... When people get married and then they break up, it's like putting together back scrambled eggs. So, I won't, I'll just leave that as an issue that you might want to take up later. I don't really have the answers for all that. First Corinthians seven twelve. But I, not the Lord, before he said the Lord, not I, but now he's saying, I, not the Lord, say to the rest. The rest whom? All the people who are not, all the, all the, believe, all the people who are in a mixed marriage. In verse 11, he was talking about, Christians in a Christian marriage, both husband and wife were married. Now he's saying to the rest, those of you who have one spouse that's married and one spouse one spouse that's a believer and one spouse that's a non-believer. So he's saying, I, not the Lord, say to the rest of you guys in mixed marriages, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. So having an unbelieving wife is not a grounds for divorce. You put a, keep her and why not? She wants to stay with you. Maybe you can convert her. She might listen to your... She might observe your Christian life and say, I, you know, I think I want that. Happens, it happens a lot. And that makes sense. Now, when he says, I, not the Lord, some people say, well, that means that the command should not be obeyed because it's merely done by Paul and he's not Jesus. That is absolute nonsense. I don't know why people love to denigrate Paul's authority. Jesus said, you believe me, you believe the ones I send. And he sent Paul by direct revelation. We're supposed to obey him. As Adam Clark said, that little statement, I, not the Lord, doesn't mean that the command has no authority. It does have authority, namely apostolic authority. All that Paul meant was is that Jesus never said anything about this in his ministry. It just never came up. There's nothing written in Scripture about it, so Paul's adding it as an apostle, which is perfectly okay. Now, these people in mixed marriages, they could have gotten that way because one spouse got converted after they were married as unbelievers. It also could refer to a believer who married an unbelieving wife, in which case they would be violating Paul's prohibition of, of, be, of being unequally yoked, marrying an unbeliever, which is not only stupid, it's against the commands. I had an unpleasant experience a couple of months ago where five, five Chinese Christian girls in, in their 20s said that they were now dating or marrying, in one case, unbelieving spouses. Uh, two of those I no longer speak to because it made me so angry. One of them, I'm just warning like crazy, you need to be careful. So far, she's being careful, but it's just stupid. Well, anyway, but the Corinthians could have done that, and so Paul is saying, okay, well, if you did it, she's unbelieving, you don't leave her. And that makes sense. The Jews actually had a law forcing divorce in the situation of a mixed marriage. If a Jew married a Gentile, he said, you've got to divorce him. Well, of course, now Paul's not going to do that. He's saying, no, you don't even have the option. You're you're not forced to divorce. You, you don't have the option to divorce. Rather, you are forced to remain married. Verses 13 through 14, 1 Corinthians 7. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they are set apart for God. 
Now here Paul just repeats the same command for women as for a husband. The husband's not supposed to leave the unbeliever. The, the believing husband is not supposed to believe the unbelieving wife, and the believing wife is not supposed to leave the unbelieving husband in the next two verses. Notice that Paul, all the way through this discussion, makes no distinction between the husband and the wife as, as far as who has the right to leave or not to leave, who has the right to divorce or not divorce, or also who has the right to have conjugal sex, uh, conjugal rights to sex from the other spouse. Both husband and wife apply. He's not making any distinctions here. Now, what does it mean for the unbelieving husband to be set apart by the believing wife. Sanctified is what some translations say. Homer Christian Study Bible says set apart. Well, the NIV Study Bible says that what that means is the unbelieving partner is influenced by the godly life of the Christian partner. And I think that's a good way to define it. It doesn't mean that they have personal sanctification. They don't have sanctification because they haven't been justified. Sanctification only comes at the time of justification. So it can't refer to that. It can't, and it also probably doesn't mean a reformation in one's way of life. Oh, my believing spouse now, my my believing, the 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 believing wife so influences the unbelieving husband that the unbelieving husband quits drinking and and watching football all day on Sunday afternoon. No, that's probably not what Paul's talking about. He's probably saying that he's influenced by the godly wife, and therefore he might get saved. We go to verses 15 and 16, and we'll shut this audio down. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Now, notice, this is a little off the subject, but notice that when you pray for somebody's salvation, you don't know that they're going to get saved. I prayed for my father's salvation all my life. 50 years, and he died an atheist. You don't know whether somebody's going to get saved or not. So what Paul is anticipating an objection here, they say, well, now, wait a minute. My unbelieving spouse wants to leave. I'm not going to give them a divorce. I'm going to fight it because, hey, maybe I can get them saved. And if they leave, I won't, I won't have a chance to get them saved. Paul said, well, you don't know whether you're going to get them saved if they stay. So don't, don't, don't force them to stay. Now, why would Paul say don't force somebody, an unbelieving spouse, to stay? Well, because it creates strife. He says, God has called you to live in peace. But now if you don't, if you fight an unbeliever and don't allow him divorce and he can't get a divorce, that means he stays in the home and then there's going to be continuous fighting because he doesn't believe you. He doesn't believe and you don't get along with him. That's probably going to be continuous fighting. Nothing worse than that. Or maybe if, if the unbeliever went ahead and decided to sue for divorce and the believer contested divorce, then you got a trial, and as we know, what are we supposed to avoid worse than death and taxes is litigation. So basically he's saying, look, stay with the willing unbeliever. If the willing unbeliever is there, you might convert him, but if you have an unwilling unbeliever, he's not willing to stay with you, let him go. Again, this is he, Paul is giving all of his instructions to Christians, in this case Christians in a mixed marriage. In the previous couple of verses he was talking about Christians in a Christian marriage, both husband and spouse believing, he was not talking about unbelievers. That's up to the state. And I used to get so balled up about that. Well, you know, the state of South Carolina, I used to practice law, and the state of South Carolina says divorces for, it used to be, I think, three years of not living together or something. I said, well, you know, that, and I used to think, well, if a Christian goes before the court, they can get a divorce. Irreconcilable differences, psychological abuse, I forgot. It's all kind of grounds. I said, that's not in the Bible. That's because Christians are held to a higher standard than the secular standard because we have the Holy Spirit of Christ living in us. We have the possibility of reconciliation. Non-Christians do not. And so 
Don't try to put Christian standards on non-Christians. Let the state take care of that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with 1 Corinthians 7, verses 15 through 16. In our next audio, we'll take up the last part of chapter 7, in which Paul gives some very anti-revolutionary advice. Keep your status unless you you can change your status if you can, whether it's slave or free, married or unmarried, whatever. But there's other things more important. And if you can't, just learn to live with it. Now, that's advice that's real hard for us in these revolutionary times to take. But we'll look at that in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.